0: Yeah, uh, we are, we're happy, and I, I shared last week with you just our excitement we have for me personally and also um, as a whole church for Grizzly Christian Fellowship. Um, and at this point, there are many reasons you could be gathering back with us. Um, you, you could have friends here. You could be just wanting to snag free books or something. You could have been coming here. It could just be a pattern for you. Um, you could think it's good for you to come here. Um, but ultimately, we want you to come here because the gospel is compelling, Um, We want this to be a place where the gospel is is at the center of the songs. We sing the word, we preach, and the prayers we pray and the relationships we make. We want the gospel to be the main force behind Grizzly Christian Fellowship, and that's what we're sticking to, and that's what we're emphasizing, Um, and and that's why I'm so happy to go through the book of Ephesians tonight. We're diving headlong um, into the gospel, Um, and so much so that that all week I was just excited for and anxious for, for the passage we're getting into tonight because it's just so dense with the gospel. Um, and last week, we looked at Paul's introduction. And what Paul was doing is he's, he's starting this reshaping process of how we view life. And we saw strategically in three subtle ways um, how he was reshaping our view by giving us a Christ-centered view of himself, a Christ-centered view of others, and a Christ-centered view um, of life. And he's going to continue that path tonight um, as we dive in um, to a large portion Of Ephesians chapter 1. And we had our our GCF booth set up at the Welcome Feast a couple weeks ago where all the uh, the the people were out there in the university gives you your one free hot dog in addition to your thousands of dollars of tuition money. Um, But if you're really nice you can get two out of them so um, it's kind of breaks even. Uh, But we were standing there and and uh, I graduated three years ago now and one of the girls who I graduated with um, was there I haven't seen since graduation she came up and she started talking to me. Um, and she's from, uh, I think she works for AAA and Helena now or something as a PR rep. And so she was back doing some stuff with the university. And as she was talking to me, um, we were just kind of sharing about our lives. Um, and ultimately, she, she was talking about what she'd seen on Facebook. And, and that um, my wife and I had our first son. And that um, she, she sees me talking about work a lot on Facebook. And just how much I love it. And how good um, my life is going. And she, she was really almost dumbfounded um, and, and really just like encouraging of like, man, your life, I'm, I'm so happy for you that your life is enjoyable as you see it to be right now. Um, and as I stood there and as she was talking to me about this, I really didn't know what to say, except I said the phrase, you know, I, I'm just, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm blessed by the things um, that are in my life. But after I said that, I was kind of convicted um, by what I said, because Our culture has such weird definitions of the word blessed. And it swings from one pendulum um, to the other pendulum. But I was nervous that that by saying I'm blessed, what she heard, and I'm not sure if she's a Christian or not a Christian. I I don't think she is a Christian. Um, What what I was worried she heard was that, well, I'm a Christian and and I'm a pastor and I work for a church and God gives nice things um, and good life to those um, who follow him. And I was worried that that's what she thought, well, I'm blessed and you're not because of who I am and what I have done. And is that really, as, as we look at the language we use as a church, is that the language we want to use when we're talking about blessing, when we're talking about being blessed? Um, and is it some genie in a bottle gift that we get that it's like, we're blessed because we get things. We're blessed because we come to possess things. What does it mean to be blessed? And I was just thinking about how we use the term blessing. A lot of times it's in terms of material things. I've been blessed with a house. I've been blessed with, with a wife. I've been blessed with a financially stable job. Things that, that we have that, that are tangi- excuse me, tangible that we can look at. And other times it's in a physical way, right? Sports gets this right. After every uh, post-game interview by some star athlete, it's always like, well, I just used the, the, the God-given ability that God's blessed me with to do this. And it's a physical thing. Um, and I looked up today... Uh, on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, I I just put in the hashtag blessed and saw what people are talking about. Um, And and the number one thing I saw on the time I was on there is that people, they'd say, thankful for another day, or thankful I woke up today, hashtag blessed. Um, The next one were people thank you for their Kanye West tickets. Um, The one after that were people toting their new shoes, lots of girls taking selfies of themselves saying blessed, which was weird. Um, but subtle, right? Not arrogant at all or self-obsessed. Um, people bragging about their spouses, their, their girlfriends or their boyfriends and how lucky they are to have um, them. Sarah was tweeting up a storm this morning about it. Um, and, 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 and one dude really, really, really excited about fried chicken. Um, and that was... Kind of the one that stood out there. And not like a little excited, like graphically in detail excited about his fried chicken. (laughs) Hashtag blessed. Um, And and so it it was so much so that, and and we use this word a lot. Um, And and I was on there, this site that tracks uh, hashtags for 12 minutes. And in that 12 minutes, the hashtag was used 90 times. Um, across these social media things. And that's just um, the ones that they're grabbing. And you can imagine how this term compiles and it builds up. And certainly, all these things we've talked about, we, we can describe blessing in some sense of the word, and some definition of blessing. We can ascribe it um, to that. But what Paul is going to show us tonight is, is the blessing to which all things are secondary. Um, and Paul is going to do this throughout the book of Ephesians. And You can just be tired of me saying the word reshaping. Um, but Paul is going to take things that we're familiar with, take things that we know, and he's going to frame them in light of who God is. Because when we get God right, we see ourselves right, we see mission right, we see worship right. Um, so I just want to pray before we get um, going tonight, because, uh, because we need God to work um, through this broken vessel with a music stand. Um, so let's pray. God, uh, we, are, we are grateful for you um, Lord, as, we, as we're looking at these first three chapters specifically um, of Ephesians, we're grateful for, for men like Paul um, who were so saturated, captivated, and emotionally tied to the gospel that it just f- flowed out of them. Um, and Lord, we pray that you will give us a, a similar desire for the gospel, a similar obsession, um, a sickness, if you will, that you may strike us with an, with an affirmit, infirmity of the gospel. Um, And, Lord, I pray that you give me uh, the words to speak tonight, that your Holy Spirit um, gives words to these um, ideas and these verses that you've given us and that it works in our hearts so that we can be transformed um, by the renewing of our minds, which is our spiritual act of worship. And so we love you, Lord. We give you this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. So tonight we're going to go through Ephesians chapter 1, um, verses 3, 3 through 12. Uh, The the passage which Jessalyn just read for us. And we're going to see four attributes of blessing. Four things that Paul is emphasizing about blessing. And number one um, is God, the source of blessing. God is the source of blessing. And we see this in verses three through the first part of four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even, that word can also be, um, in so, that um, as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I kind of had, my, my first time reading through this, I had an idea where I wanted to go and kind of what I wanted to say about blessing, but that first phrase that Paul used um, kind of stumped me. I couldn't get past it, because here I'm talking about all these blessings that God's going to give us that we're going to talk about, and right off the bat, Paul says, blessed be God the Father. And I really couldn't get past that, because we see Paul saying, blessed be the Father, God the Father, and then we also say, who has blessed us. And so we see the word blessed used twice, but they're in two completely different ways. Because certainly the blessing that God gives us isn't the blessing that God needs. And as Paul's going to talk about, we're blessed in that we receive redemption. God doesn't need redemption. Paul's not saying, God, be redeemed. God doesn't need to be forgiven. God doesn't need need to be blessed with mercy. He embodies those things. God doesn't need to be blessed by Paul. So what what is Paul saying here? He's God. Remember this? Well, what are we giving to God in that we're saying, hey, blessed be God. And me, I've been around the church forever, and I remember how many of you guys know the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, Blessed Be His Glorious Name. And it took me how many years of singing that for me today to sit down and be like, what am I saying? What, what is it about, how, what does it mean when we're saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And so, so I went and looked at the text, and actually there's, the word blessing here is two different words that he uses in this text. He uses one word when he's talking about God, giving a blessing, and another word that Paul opens up with when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says, Blessed be God, the word he's using is actually a word which means to be made adorable. And not adorable like Tyler, um, but adorable like adoration. Like, Like to be made holy, to be seen as worthy, to be set apart. And so that's important because uh, as the original people read this, they read this and it had, because there's no one-to-one translation um, through languages, they had a different word than we do. And it's not that Greek was any more special than what we have. But when the original people read it, they see Paul saying, um, honor be to you. Adoration be to you. Holiness be to you. And that's important because Paul is setting up here um, that before we see um, God as the giver of blessing, God is also the source of blessing. He is the one of great worth, of infinite value. Paul is calling us to see the worthiness of God the Father in and of himself. The worth of God, just, just, just having a God who exists in triune existence, he is already the most worthy, the most honorable, the most glorified object that ever existed. You see, God didn't even, if, if God never intervened into human history, he would still be worthy of all the praise and all the glory and all the honor in the world. God is innately worthy. He demands adoration because of who he is because he is God the creator, God the sustainer, um, and all these things are secondary um, to God being the object of greatest worth. And see, the ultimate root of sin is a failure to see God as worthy. The ultimate root of sin is not an issue of unbelief. It's an issue of worship. And we see that in James, right? The demons believe there is a God. Belief isn't the issue. Seeing God as an object of worth is the issue. And so many times, we as Christians say we can believe in God, but we see minimal worth in God. And then there's little worship, and there's not much that separates you from someone who doesn't believe in God if you don't see God as an object of ultimate worth. And I was thinking about this, and I said it's kind of weird to just see this this entity that in and of himself is worthy. When, When it comes to Scripture, how do we understand this? How do we see that? But I realized, um, as I was f- reflecting um, over kind of what I'd seen in the last few weeks, I realized that that we get this idea, and I was thinking back to the unfortunate pleasure I had of watching the MTV Music Awards this year, um, Miley Cyrus and all, um, and, and in it they gave Justin Timberlake like the award of epic awesomeness for all time, um, and and what he he ba- it basically was like a six-hour. Dance event for Justin Timberlake. That like every they brought in sync back and like people are dancing around and all this stuff, um, and it never ended. Um, but but I was amazed and I was mesmerized at this. I'm not a big pop music guy. I think Justin Timberlake has some catchy things. That suit and tie song was stuck in my head forever when it came out. Um, but ultimately, you know Justin Timberlake is uh, he, he was a mouseketeer. Okay, there's a level. There's like a ceiling for that. Um, but as you watch this, I was mesmerized. But I was mesmerized because of the, the worth that these people in this stadium were giving to him. He was dancing and he was singing and he was doing his bringing sexy back thing and it was entertaining in a way. But what was really mind-blowing is that this whole stadium of I don't know how many tens of thousands of people were mesmerized at this single man who amidst all these people was one six-foot, 180 perfectly sculpted being. Um, <laughs> But it was this one person, and they didn't know him. They'd probably never talked to him. They'd probably never seen him outside of a television screen prior to this. And yet this whole arena was captivated by Justin Timberlake, not only because of who he was in that arena, but because of what he had done outside of that arena. And I noticed something where as he's kind of walking this labyrinth of stage, that wherever he goes, there's this sea of hands reaching up to him. And even though you may never see this man, you may never know this man, the closer he got to people, the more ecstatic these people got. The more, the more they were wanting to reach out to him, the more they were wanting to encounter who he was. You see, people saw a worth in Justin Timberlake even at a distance. And that innate worth transferred into a desire to know him even more, to, to, to touch him, to get a high five from him. Um, and really, to put this into perspective, We see that value, and Justin Timberlake offered people a hand, but the God of the universe offered people his son. You see, the God of the universe initiated. Justin Timberlake doesn't care about you, but we see a completely different attitude that God is giving here. You see, God is the blessed blesser. God is the one who in and of himself is of ultimate worth, but because his worth is rooted in his love, he gives us blessing out of the storehouses of abundance in himself. God is not stingy. God is not isolated. God exists in perfect, triune, eternal existence, sufficient in his love, so much so that he gives it away. And the worth of who God is dictates the worth of his blessings he has bestowed. And he has given us, as Paul's going to show us, he has given us a great blessing. So I just want to read that again, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, blessings are undeserved. Rewards are your due, due reward, right? You earned a reward, but blessings find their merit outside of you. Blessings are giver-based, okay? Blessings come from the worth of someone else out of the abundance of someone else, and God blessed us in Christ before the foundations of the world. And not only did God just bless us in Christ, but he's elaborating on this. He says, God blessed us in Christ, giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, everyone knows about heaven. Everyone knows that heaven's gonna be better than earth. If you can possess all of the blessings of heaven, people would pay infinite amounts of money for that. But God has given us that. The blessings that your wildest dreams cannot understand, God has given us those blessings in Christ. Every blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. Why? Because before the foundations of the world, he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless before God. You see, this answers a kind of a great question. As, as people inside the church and people outside the church look at the story of Christianity, and that answer is, was did God mean for the fall to happen? When sin entered the world, was that something that God had this perfect vision for humanity, and it was going to be him in the garden with Adam and Eve forever and ever, and, and Satan weaseled his way in and just foiled God's plan? Just a thorn in God's side. Was the fall part of God's plan? Well, if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, it would appear that it was. Because Paul just says, before the foundations of the world, God reached out to a people who were not acknowledging his worth, and through Christ, he made the blameworthy blameless, and he made the profaned holy. You see, if if we were not worthy of blame, if we were perfectly holy, God wouldn't need to make us anything. We already are. But before the foundations of the world, God planned for Jesus to come so that we can encounter a transformation. You see, everything that's recorded in Scripture, everything that's not recorded in Scripture, everything that's going to be recorded in eternity future is all part of God's glorious plan. God is the source of blessing. And number two, Christ is the way of blessing. Christ is the way of blessing. Verses four through six. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we know now that that God has blessed us in Christ, right? We just read that. We understand. We're we're in college. We see when it says he has blessed us in Christ Jesus, we understand that he has blessed us in Christ. Christ Jesus. But how has God blessed us in Christ Jesus? Why is that such a beautiful gift to us? Why is that something that Paul chooses to lead his letter and his prayer with? Why is this of utmost importance to who Paul is? In what way are we blessed? We are blessed that in love God predestined us for adoptions as sons to Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved which is Christ. How are we blessed? How are you blessed as a Christian? What difference does Jesus make in your life? He allows you to be adopted as sons of the Father. Jesus Christ is a blessing that enables us to come and have relationship with a Father who we rejected relationship with. You see, that's a great blessing. And the story of Hosea Um, is a pretty fascinating story. I'm not sure how many of you guys are familiar with the book of Hosea, but the guy drew the short straw in scripture, right? Like, after you read the story of Hosea, you're wishing to be Jonah eaten by a fish, Um, because what happened is there's this guy named Hosea, um, and, and at this point in Israel, Israel is at its, its lowest point, okay? Um, it's split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and neither of them are following God at this time. They're sacrificing um, to other idols, and they're refusing to say what Paul just said. They're not saying, blessed be God the Father, glory to God, adoration be to God. Um, and so God goes, um, and in the very first thing it says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. We know nothing about Hosea. But now we see the word of the Lord coming to Hosea. And and no joke, this is a real live verse from your Bible. Hosea, go and marry a whore and make children of whoredom. Okay, that's in the Bible. That is the verse in the Bible. Here it is. And not only that, he says... uh, um, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's Hosea two uh, or one verse two, and this isn't a shock and awe thing that God's like, oh, God says whore, that means he's relevant. Um, this is something where, where this is the atrocity of our sin. This is the atrocity of having an object of ultimate worth but refusing to treasure him as so and so. God chooses Hosea and he says, Hosea, you're gonna you're gonna be my living illustration of my relationship with the people of Israel. And so Hosea goes and finds Gomer, um, and, and they, who's his whore, apparently, uh, and, and finds Gomer and they conceive and they bear a son. And God, um, God has the ability to name people sons that we just don't. I have some friends who just had a son. They named him Henry. I don't have the right to go and name him something else. But God does. And so God comes down into this situation. He says, hey, Hosea and Gomer, your son's name is God so's judgment. And they're like, well, that's, that's cool, right? That's unique, okay? And so they have this son, and it's, it's God so's judgment. Um, and then Gomer has another child, and it's a daughter. And they're like, okay, well, it can only get better, right? God so's judgment. They're like, yeah, you guys are gonna call this one no pity, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> And the word they use for pity is actually it's tied to the womb, and so what it's really saying is no motherly affection for that one. It's just like mom doesn't even love you, no pity for you. Um, and so at this point, I would stop with the kids. Okay, <laughs> cut your losses, get out, adopt a dog. Um, but Jose or, or Gomer gets pregnant again and has another son, um, and God's like, not my people. That's her name, not my people. Um, And so Hosea has these three children. God sows judgment, no pity, and not my people. And the point of this is God is really emphasizing the sins that have crept into Israel. The idolatry they're committing with other gods has isolated them from God. God has no pity for them in their sin. They are not part of God's people, and they are only sowing judgment. They're living in sin. And that's the message um, that we get in verses 1 through 8 um, of Hosea. But God promises a future for this. He promises a future in this story, and I love this. And and bear in mind the names of the children. No pity, um, not my people. But look at this in verses 10 through 11, the first part of 11. Yet, despite all of this, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured and numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. They shall appoint for themselves one leader. You see, that one head that Hosea was prophesying about, that one head that takes a people, and Paul references this in Romans. He, he references this exact verse where it says, in the place where God had said you are not my people, I will now make you my people. That head is Christ that head is the ultimate king of Israel who brings not only the kingdoms together, but brings those who were estranged from God, who had no motherly pity, who were not his people, who only sowed judgment and brought them to a place of ultimate acceptance and blessing. You see, the greatest act of blessing we have received is that God in his ultimate love chose us to be like him through Christ. Christ. God chose us to bring us into his family as people who are adopted through Christ. No Christ, no adoption. No Christ, no love. No Christ, no pity. No Christ, no people. But God before the foundations of the world knew that people were going astray and gave the remedy in Christ. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that God stumbled into. It wasn't God's plan B. This was God's plan All along, God, like a loving father, planned the ultimate redemption of his people. You want us to know a great transcendent truth about God? You in here today, if you have a conscious awareness of God, if you see God of worth, that is in part a choice that you see. You are seeing God is worthy. You are choosing to obey God. You are choosing to exercise belief in him. But you only do that because God first chose you. You see, what a love. You see, in adoption, you don't get little kids coming and asking to be adopted to you. They don't sneak out of the orphanage, come and knock on your door and say, you know what? Hey, can I be your child? It doesn't work that way. What happens is you go and you select a child. God selected us. And I love Romans 5 verse 8 where it says this, but God shows his love for us. How does God show his love for us? In what way is God's love? We all know God is love. But how does God climax his love for us? But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were not a people, Christ made us a people. While we had no motherly affection, Christ brought us into the Father's affection. That is a great love. That is the basis for love. You see, I love my wife Sarah, but if that's just based on my, 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 my physical attraction to her, her ability to cook delicious meals and take care of my son, you know, there are going to be times where she misses a meal. There are going to be times where um, she, she's, well, I don't want to like, make fun of her, but she's probably going to make a mistake with my son. I'm probably not going to feel this ultimate affection towards her on a physical sense. But that's where God set the basis of a choosing love. Because I'm choosing to love my wife. And that is a greater love than anything else. You know why love is in shambles today? You know why divorces are so rampant? Because people don't choose to love. People fall in love. But love is a choice. And God modeled that through Christ. And there's no stronger affection than a father's love who sought children when they were far off and made them love through the sacrifice of his own child. That's love, that's adoption, that's blessing. Man, how great is that? And the result of this love is consuming. This is the third point. Redemption is the life of blessing. God is the source of blessing. Christ is the way of blessing. Redemption is the life of blessing. Verses 7 through 10. In Him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to the purpose with with which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And actually, it's it's over there. Toss me that little book on the ground. See, this is what I don't like here. See, how many of you guys were on campus the other day and the Gideons walked around with their New Testament and then Psalms and Proverbs? It's like, hey, you know, out of like the 30 plus books in the Old Testament, we got two of them that are of worth. So why don't you stick with those and then we'll do the New Testament, okay? But you're cutting out the whole Old Testament, You're cutting out what Jesus himself called the Holy Scriptures. And I love this because when we look at the Old Testament, we see both the grace of God and the justice of God. We need the Old Testament. That was my point. Sorry, Gideons, for slandering you. Um, You see, God made it clear to Adam and Eve while they were in the garden that to sin is to die, right? God gave one command. It was don't die. That was what he gave him. He said, hey, do everything but don't die by eating that tree." And they they did what? They ate from the tree and they died. Not in a physical sense, but the curse that God gives them in Genesis chapter 3 is representative of the death we all died death to Christ, estrangement from our Heavenly Father. Sin equals death. And in the Old Testament, we see the grace of God and we see the justice of God in the sacrificial system. You see, animals were sacrificed like they're going out of style. When you read the Pentateuch, when you read the books of the law, it's like, you did this, sacrifice this. You did this, burn this. You did this, slit the throat of this. Blood and blood and blood. And, but they weren't sacrificed because God delighted in animal sacrifices. It's not that God liked the odor of this animal sacrifice. In fact, in the prophets and, and things like Isaiah, he says, this, the stench of your sacrifice is detestable to me. They were sacrificed because blood had to be shed because sin was present. And in order for there to be peace, blood had to flow. And in Leviticus 16, you see what is one of the heaviest passages in all of the Old Testament, and it's called the Day of Atonement. And you can't cut Leviticus 16 out of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Leviticus 16, it's it's now called Yom Kippur. Many of you have heard that. The Jews still celebrate the Day of Atonement. And it's one day a year, where the priests gather all the people and they gather all these sacrifices and they're gonna offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice so that all of the sins of the people of Israel are atoned before God so that the blood that was required from their sin is shed so that they may live as the people of God in his love and not in his wrath. You see, that's justice. Sin has to be punished. To ignore sin is to be unjust. God is just and so he accepts sacrifices as a punishment for sin. And so it's this day where the priests are offering sacrifices for unintentional sins, sacrifices um, for intentional sins, sacrifices for sins people don't even know of, for sins that people aren't aware of because sin has to be covered by blood. And the Day of Atonement shapes much of what goes on in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but also shapes how we view the New Testament. The author of Hebrews treated it this way. He says this, in verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time, not multiple, not reoccurring, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, Christ is the greater sacrifice, Christ is the sacrifice that the day of atonement waited for. Christ is the true atoning lamb that covers the sins of the world. That's what John proclaimed, right? He said, behold the Christ who takes away the sins of the world. That's ultimate atonement. That's not yearly atonement. That's not monthly atonement. That's permanent, single, infinite atonement. Christ is the greater sacrifice. And that's why I'm so crushed by this verse, verse 7 of chapter 1. In him... Just look at the pronouns. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, we brought the trespasses. Jesus brought the blood. Hallelujah. What an injustice. That his riches and his grace and his mercy and his blood covered our iniquity and our trespasses and our sins against him. You see, this is redemption. Redemption isn't a spiritual term. Redemption is a monetary term. To redeem something is a transfer of value for the payment of something owed. You redeem coupons, they owe you something. They owe you a discount. You redeem bank loans. You redeem all these things. The beauty of redemption is not only that Christ has canceled our sins, but he has redeemed us from our sins. The beauty of redemption is not only do we live life at at ground zero, but he's given us a positive charge that we live the rest of our lives out of that overflow. I want to read this again, verses seven through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in things in heaven and things on earth. See, and I want you guys to get this because so many times, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but we wait to see what the will of God is. You know, what's, what's the will of God? If only we could see. It's like the philosophical question. It's like, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Well, he just told us. We just read what the will of God is. What is the will of God? To unite all things in heaven. To unite all things in Christ, excuse me. Things in heaven and things on earth. And the word that Paul uses for unite isn't just like to bring together. It's it's not just to combine, it's not just to, to bring into one accord. The word he uses has the tone of sum, like a math equation. The sum of all things is to find their sum in Christ. Meaning the addition of things past and the addition of things future are done so that they find their fullness in Christ. Christ is the answer to our existence. Christ is the blessing of our existence. He is the reward of our existence. The will of God, which was set forth in Christ, is for the fullness of time, and that reward is that the sum of all things will be in Christ, both in heaven and on earth. And you see, you say, Well, that's the will of God. I'm waiting for my will. The will of God isn't separate from you, the will of God consumes you. The will that God put forth in Christ is the will of God's church. Right, Paul talks about that. to reconcile, we've given ourselves over to the ministry of reconciliation, to bringing things back to Christ. And Paul is once again fighting that individualism we discussed last week. So many times we compartmentalize and individualize blessings. This is my blessing. This is my." We'll use the term "reward. This is what I'm due. This is what I've earned. We see blessings for individuals and also for the sake of individuals. But the beauty of this passage is that in 12 verses, Paul used 11 plural pronouns. That means that Paul used 11 times words like us, we, our. See, what what Paul is saying is that these blessings, this blessing in Christ, this, this adoption this love, this seeing of God's will, this joy of redemption, this free bond-setting beauty isn't for the pastor, it isn't for the missionary, it isn't for the super Christian, it is for those who have been granted adoption through Christ's blood. This blessing is available to each and every Christian. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, you have been given an overwhelming amount of infinite blessing in all the heavenly places in Christ. And the good news is, it just gets better. It just gets better. You see, it's almost that God has given us in Christ all of the supplies and all of the designs and all of the power to build the house and we get to spend the rest of our life being amazed at what's being constructed around us. It takes work and it takes effort, but it's the greatest blessing we could ever participate in. If you are not Christ, I mean, if you are not in Christ, none of us are Christ. <laughs> if you're not Christ, you could stay here. Um if you're not in Christ, I just I, I pray that your prayer becomes blessed. Be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you see as Paul said and we looked at in Philippians last year that the surpassing worth of Christ is so much so that you count everything else as loss. I pray that God awakens your heart and shakes you from your sin and estrangement and brings you into his family through the sacrifice of Christ for his sins. And we and those who are around you will say with you as Paul just said for the praise of his glorious grace. For the praise of God's awe-inspiring undeserved gift. You see, the plan for the world is the reconciliation of all things in Christ, and the beauty of that is that it's still building. Despite what we see on TV, despite what the newspapers talk about, despite what we see on the internet, the kingdom of Christ is at the strongest it's ever been. Why? Because God's gonna bring that kingdom. No, God's gonna, he's not gonna bring the kingdom here, but we're gonna be in the kingdom there. But history isn't cyclical. History is building. History is building towards that great culmination when Christ comes back down to earth and he brings all things to himself and restores all things to himself, either in judgment or reconciliation. The plan of God is being fulfilled today and nothing will stand in its way. The sum of all things is Christ and everything being brought under his feet. God will unite all things in Christ and we have the pleasure, the power, and the responsibility of living our lives for that cause. The will of God dictates the will of the Christian. And this life lived in that is the fourth and final point of our redemption. Praise is the glory of blessing. We see this in Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And so we're going to revisit this passage, um, verses 11. We're going to look at 11 through 14 next week, and we're going to dive more into the vast riches that Paul is talking about, this, this inheritance that we've obtained in Christ. But I want to focus on one thing here, because in those verses there's this clause that interrupts, but really what he's saying is, in him we have obtained an inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see, we are the praise of God's glory. And Paul is writing to a people who are literal firsts here. Paul is saying um, that we who are the first to hope in Christ. And they really were. On one hand, Paul's preaching to Jews who their, their, their whole history led up to Jesus. And he's saying, this Jesus is the Messiah you waited for. This Jesus is the one leader from Hosea. He's the suffering servant from Isaiah. He's, he's bringing the new spirit that Ezekiel talked about. This Jesus is who you were looking for. And then he's also talking to these Gentiles who could never be part of Israel because they weren't Israelites. They were Gentiles. But now he says you gentiles Christ has brought you into his people. You are part of his people. Being in me is now the identifying factor of your life. So he's writing to people who when he says the first to hope in Christ, these people were literally some of the first people to hope in Christ. But we see in James 1:18 that God also chose to bring up his church as first fruits. We are first in Christ. Because God, before the foundations of the world, desired for us to be here in this place, worshiping this God, we are the fruit of God's labor on the cross. We are the culmination of his glory because God, shattering the bonds of sin, breaking the holds of death, bringing to life the long-deceased, is setting himself up as the gracious Lord over all things, worthy of more glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen. In the fact that we are redeemed, we are both objects which inspire praise. Look at what God did. And we're objects that give praise. Look at what God has done. Look at my Savior. Look at my God. Our job is to live a life of redemption which culminates in worship contagious, awe inspiring, God glorifying worship. That's our inheritance. A portion of our inheritance, a portion of the blessing God has given us in Christ is praise, is celebration, is corporate praise given to God on high, Jesus who paid the sacrifice and ascended to the right hand of God where he sits to make his enemies a footstool. God has given us the gift of praise. and There's no greater existence than this. There's no greater love than this. As we, the people of God, praise God, we are living and celebrating the wholeness of who God is and the plan that he has set in place. So do you see the blessing of God? When we talk about blessing, what is the greatest blessing that you have in this world? What is it that you think of? Not only what is it that you think of, because I just gave you something to think of, what is it that you're satisfied with? What blessing in your life is of ultimate, lasting satisfaction? Because the blessing that Paul talks about blows everything else out of the water. The blessing that Paul talks about is not on our own merit, but of the glorious grace of someone else. The one who out of love chose to love those and make those who were lost found. The one who chose us who were condemned and made us to live the one who chose us who are voiceless and graciously gave us a voice of praise. And blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has done great things, and we are filled with joy. And as I was writing this this morning, um, I couldn't help my grandpa, um, what used to be the, the, it wasn't a worship leader back then, it was choir directors, Right? Um, and I remember Grandpa singing this one song, and I, I never liked it because it was sing-songy. And I grew up in the time where, like, if you sang hymns, you're not cool. Um, and we wanted to sing, like, uh, I don't know, Striper and things like that. Um, man, that's worship music, and hymns are so not now. Um, but I couldn't shake this song. And I, I, you can ask my wife, I'm not good at remembering lyrics. I'm horrible at lyrics. But, but this song was just stuck um, in my mind. And so... Um, what I want to do is, is I want to, uh, actually want to sing it, not to you guys, um, but I, I want us to sing it together here in closing, um, just just a cappella. The words are going to be on the screen, um, and I need your help to do it because no one wants to hear me do it, um, but, uh, but I'm just going to read the first um, verse and the course, and then I want to go back, and we'll stand and we'll sing it in closing because this, get these words. Because this, this is it. This is, if, if I could write a sermon on Ephesians 1, it would be this hymn. Um, but it would have been short, and you guys would have liked it way too much. Um, and so, so this is it. It says, it's called, To God be the glory. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. O come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he hath done.